We are reading in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, and we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we got through verse 1. Sometimes we get through a whole chapter in a week, sometimes we stop. And I, I have gone through this whole chapter all week, and I just couldn't get past verse 1. So we're going to start again on verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Last week we spoke more about the latter half of that verse. I want to speak about the beginning part of that verse. Now, Abram was 99 years old. So remember, he was came into the land, he was called into the land at 75 years old. And now he's 99 years old. 24 years he's been in that land. The promise came to him, the first calling into the land came in when he was 75 years old. He's now 99. It's been 23 years since Genesis chapter 15 when God last appeared to him. This is the fifth appearance of God to Abram. The fifth appearance. But it's been 23 years since the last appearance. It's interesting now, God is going to speak to him in this chapter about the fulfillment of a promise. About the fulfillment of a promise. And that promise being that he is going to have a son and is the name of his son is going to be Isaac, and that son is going to come through his wife, Sarah. Up until this point, all he knows is that his son, Ishmael, who's 13, is going to be the promised blessing son. God never said anything about Sarah being the blessing wife until this chapter. But what I want to focus on is that the man is now 99 years old, and all of a sudden, God appears to him and says, you're about to have a son. There are things that happen that I want you to remember that so often if you walk with God, God will hold things off in your life sometimes for decades. And he expects you to walk with him in the interim. He has been... Two and a half decades in the land, God promising him the land. He still doesn't own any of the land. He doesn't own any of that land. God told him he's going to have that land of Canaan plus lots of other land. He still doesn't possess any of it. God has only made a promise to him. He doesn't own any of that land. But God made him a promise. God made him a promise that he was going to bless his son and bless the, the, the descendants of that seed son. That, that God was gonna, God was gonna do that and bless the descendants of that seed son. And, and still, he hasn't gotten any of that. Fulfillment doesn't always come right away. If you think, for example, of Moses, Moses, when Moses was 40 years old, it said he went out, and remember, he lived in the house of Pharaoh, and he went out, Moses went out, and he, he saw the children of Israel. He wanted to go check on their welfare, being a Jew himself, but growing up in the house of Pharaoh. He still had this longing to be with the children of Israel, even though he had been grown up in the house of Pharaoh. So he went out to check on their welfare, and he saw one of them being beaten, and he killed the man who was beating him. So he saw one of his fellow Jews being beaten by an Egyptian. He killed the Egyptian. 
Moses fled at the age of 40. At the age of 40, he was willing, he was ready to go out and, and, and deliver his people. God took him and put him in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses. And then God called him when he was 80 years old. He called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. And Moses was like, ah, I don't think so. I'm 80 years old. Send somebody else. Remember, at the age of 40, I was willing to do this. Now I'm 80. It's not going to happen anymore. And God persisted and called him. So there was this lack of time. Sometimes there's decades before we see the fruit of something that interests us. And so I started to think about my own life. And I started to think of, of what is it? What is it that, that, that I've been asking the Lord for? For a long, long time. And so I came to the Lord 41 and a half years ago. When I was, when I was uh, uh, 18, when I had first, first gone to college, I had just turned 18, like uh, a few weeks before uh, I went to college. And, and uh, I came to know the Lord in, in the first semester of my freshman year. In November of my freshman year, I came to know the Lord. And since coming to the Lord, I have had this tremendous burden to tell other people about Jesus. Just love to tell other people about Jesus. Something I wanted to do. And I was never very good at it. And, but I would still try to do it. And for all these years, I would try to tell people about Jesus. And, and to show you the extent to which I did this, when I was an undergraduate, I knocked on the doors of all the homes. I lived in a, in a, in a in a discipleship house that was owned by the pastor. And I had gone and knocked on the doors of all the homes around that home. Just seeing if I could tell people about Jesus. When I went off to graduate school, um, uh, I knocked on every door of every apartment around, er, around campus at Purdue University that was not university-owned. Because the university-owned Dormitories had these special rules that you had to deal with. But if they were just private apartment buildings, I just walked right in and I would knock on doors. I mean, every I chose a night every week and I'd knock on doors. If other people would go with me, I'd gladly go with them. Sometimes I'd just go alone. If there was an odd, if there were, if there had been an odd number amongst us going, I would always go the odd man out. I'd go alone. But I'd go knocking on doors, and then sometimes I'd just go through the student center trying to tell people about Jesus. So you'd think there'd be all these people that would know Jesus because of my witness. And that's not the case. I'd get maybe two or three converts a year. Two or three converts a year. But I just persisted. Because I loved to tell people about Jesus. Jesus had done so much in my life. I wanted to tell them about Jesus. And then about a year and a half ago, I started studying... I, I really wanted to understand how these men, how these great men like, like Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield were able to get so many converts, so many converts. So I started reading their books. So in the last year and a half, I've read The Evangelistic Focus of Charles Spurgeon over 20 times. So if you hand me a book and ask me to read it, I'm not going to read it. Because you see, I'm already consumed reading this book over and over again. I've read, I've read The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon about five or six times. I've read The Evangelistic Zeal of George Whitfield about seven or eight times. 
in this last year and a half. And I learned, what I learned from these men, that it wasn't methodology. I'd taken lots of courses on evangelism. You thought, maybe he doesn't know how to do this. So I took courses. You know, you use this technique, you use that technique, you say this, you say that. Everybody had a little bit different way of doing it. So there were all these different methods to do it. So you would think that, that, that you know, one of these has got to work. Nothing ever really changed until I started studying these, this, the, the approach of the, these men. And one of the basic things about their approach was this. That it wasn't so much the little words that I said, it was getting a hold of my heart. Did I really want to see these people saved? Or did I like, well, you know, if you don't want to listen, you go to hell. Oh, sorry about that. How much does it affect me? Was I able to say, I really wanted to see them saved? And then all of a sudden, I started seeing people saved. To the point where, now, I am amazed all the time. All the time. So, I would say, on average, there's about one person per week getting saved through my witness. I just sit with them, and I'm amazed. I can sit with a person for ten minutes, tell them the gospel story and bring them right to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they will believe in the resurrection. You say, okay, well, these are uneducated people. No. Everybody I speak with is educated. They're more educated than you. I mean, I speak with professors, I speak with graduate students, I speak with postdocs, young physicians, and then once in a while some undergraduates. The undergraduates are the least educated people that I ever speak with. And, and, uh, uh, and again and again, they keep coming to the Lord. Again and again, they keep coming to the Lord. What happened? And then I was, as I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about this. What happened? What's going on here? Well, it's been 40 years. It was 40 years from the time I got saved to the time I started seeing this happen. 40 years. What does that say for you? You got some things you want to accomplish in life? You must continue with the Lord and you don't give up. I want to read you something in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast, boast in the Lord. All I do is I give them the direct gospel that cuts and hacks and pierces. I just give the direct gospel about what happened in my life, about how I'm a sinner and I got saved and I bring them right to the resurrection. To Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that you have to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead. Now, how is that going to work with the educated? Saw four people come to the Lord last week. The youngest of them was a graduate student. The oldest of them was a professor. How is the resurrection going to work with the intelligentsia? How is that going to work? Maybe with, with you know, some uneducated person you can talk about the resurrection. How does the resurrection work 
with the educated. It pierces directly, right in. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what does it. I talk about confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he's risen from the dead. And I'll say something like this. It's hard to believe in a physical resurrection, isn't it? Jesus appeared to his disciples over 500 of them at one time, and over a period of 40 days. There is more evidence for his resurrection than any other event of that time in history. But you don't even need that. Because he's already placed that truth in your heart. That's the only way that I can explain it. That God would take an educated person and... Have them receive the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, in a three-minute conversation about the resurrection. How can that be? If I tried to convince you today that Santa Claus is real, I wouldn't be able to do it. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been burned on the hearts of the elect. Those whom he has called, he has seared that right on their hearts. I just go right with the gospel directly with the gospel and the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. And one after another, men and women. Okay, I get it. Jesus rose from the dead. I'm like, huh? <laughs> that simple? Is that it? And I'm like, i, I, I got to bring him through this. And, and so I say, I'm going to pray. And you're going to make this proclamation in the prayer. And I pray the prayer, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe Jesus is Lord. And they're repeating after me. And Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're repeating after me. These are the educated. I don't go to Ecuador or Cambodia or any of these places. I don't. I just go to the Rice University campus or to other campuses. And I just preach this word to the educated. To the most educated in the world. And one after another, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. And so what I want to do is I want to start look, looking up at, at, at the top of that chapter as well. If we'll look up at, at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So you see, he says, I'm going to take the foolish things of the world where the world just mocks a resurrection, a faith that's built on the resurrection of a person. People don't rise from the dead. Come on. How can you build a whole faith on that? God says, okay, I'll show you. Because it's true. And He's burned that on the hearts of men and women so that when we preach that word, it pierces right through the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. It says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the elect, it is the power of God. 
The Bible puts it two ways, and the New Testament is filled with this, and we looked over these verses a few weeks ago, so we're not going to do it again. But it puts it in two ways, depending on what version you're looking at. It puts it either the elect, or it puts it the chosen. God has His chosen. God chose a, a young a, a, a child to be born in Genesis chapter 17. He chose a child to be born, and He says His name is going to be Isaac. And through that child, I'm going to bring a whole people to myself. Isaac hadn't even been born yet. And he already told who the child was going to be. He already told what was going to happen with the child and that a whole people would be chosen. A whole people would be chosen. I mean, election of an entire nation would be a greater crime if election be a crime than electing one person. God elects. God chooses. And we speak the word. And you say, well, how do you know if they're elect? We don't know. We don't know. How can we know? I don't know if they're elect. I don't know if they're ready. I don't know if it's time. All I know is this. God says, in, he, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 38, I am sending you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you are entering into their labor. I said, yes, that's what I want. I want to reap where others have labored and I haven't. Let me do that. You send me to where others have labored and I just close the deal. I love that. Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. So I said, okay, Lord, you said the fields are white for harvest. You know what that means? They're white for harvest. They're ready to be harvested. So stop sending me into the fields that aren't white. Send me into the fields that are white. If you told me that they're white for harvest and you're sending me into that harvest, then let me get into those fields. Bring me the wheat that's ready to be harvested. Let me enter into the labors. And, and you know, this happens all the time. There's all these wonderful Chinese uh, uh, men and women among us that I love the Chinese. And they'll go to Pastor Tao's church and he works with them and they're in these Bible studies and everything. And then I say to them, are you a Christian? They say, no, I'm attending this Bible study. I'm like, oh good, somebody else has done the labor. I'm just going to harvest today. <laughs> and, uh, and within 10 minutes, they're bowing to the Lord. Within 10 minutes, they're receiving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is able to do this. I'm telling you, it was 40 years as I back-calculated it. This happened a year and a half ago where this thing turned on, where I started studying these men. That was 40 years after I got saved. For 25 years, Abraham waited for a promise. He went 23 years without God ever appearing to him. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness thinking he was ready 40 years earlier. Now he's 80 years old. And you, you know, a lot happens to your body in 40 years. And he says, yeah, I'm not quite ready for this. And Lord says, now you're ready. Because you think you're not quite ready, now you're ready. I've chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things of the, of the strong, the, the, the things that are strong. I've chosen the base things of the world and the despised, the things that are not. I've chosen... To bring shame to the things that are, are, are supposedly wisdom. That's what he's saying here. He says, he says in, in, in this verse 18, the latter part, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
So here are all these educated people. And they're getting destroyed, their wisdom, by the resurrection. And I start talking to them, and then they start getting all spiritual on me, and they say, well, what about this? I go, boom, right at the resurrection again. And they start bringing this up. I go right at the resurrection again, and then they crumble. I'm going right at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they concede. Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm like, amazing, amazing. All I know how to preach is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, he says in, in, in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? This is like me. Where's the wise? Bring him on. <laughs> Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I mean the foolishness of the message. My message is a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He's the son of God. You've got to bow before him. Okay. It's just like that. Okay. I'm constantly amazed at this. Constantly amazed at what God does. What God does. The power of the gospel is what he's put before us. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know him... I urge you to come to Him this day. Come to Him. He has risen from the dead. You are among the elect. And you can say, how do you know that? Because I know. You wouldn't be here if you were not among the elect. You would be out somewhere else partying and, and, and just having fun with the devil. You would be somewhere else. That you are here means that you are to be saved. You will be saved. All I'm saying is do it sooner rather than later before you really mess up your life. Your life really can get destroyed really fast. You guys are at the age where you're right at this point where lives get changed for good or for evil. Lots of times when you're young you make decisions and those decisions have small ramifications. When you get to start graduating from college and make decisions, those decisions have big ramifications. You marry a selfish person, you're going to be in for big headache problems for a long, long time. You get involved in the right, wrong sort of things. At this age, you end up going to jail. You know, I mean, just let me give you an example. Students run around naked on, on some Friday nights during the year on campus. When you graduate, if you do that anywhere else, you go to jail for that. Lots of things that happen when you're, when you're a student that all of a sudden are going to start shifting and have big ramifications in your life. Things change. I urge you to come to Him now. You will be coming to Him. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted Him in your heart, I urge you, come to Him this day. Don't put it off any longer. The Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. That means today. And you think, well, let me go home and pray about it. Who are you going to pray to? You don't know the Lord yet. Alright? Second of all, you don't go home and pray about obeying Him. The Bible says, I made haste and I did not delay to keep your word. Psalm 119 verse 60. I made haste and I did not delay to keep your word. 
It says in 1 John 3.23, This is His commandment that we believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's His commandment. Believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do not wait. Do not wait. Do not delay on this. Do not delay. Receive the Lord this day. If you are a believer, remember what I am telling you. We have timetables in our life. Like, Lord, I just asked you so that I'd have real success in evangelism and I've waited all of 30 seconds. When are you going to give this to me? The Lord has different timetables because sometimes we're not ready for it yet and He cares more about us as individuals. He knows how to take care of the lost. He knows how to handle that. He's more interested in you as an individual. He wants to get at something in your heart. There are things that He delays on that sometimes cause us great struggles. Imagine what Abram went through. He's in this land. He has no other family. His nephews departed from him. He's just got his wife and his little community of the, the slaves that he owns and his, his little community. That's all he's got. He's got nothing else. He doesn't own even a ne- square nanometer of that land. He doesn't own it. All he's got is a promise. That's all he's got is a promise. And he doesn't hear from God for 23 years. 23 years since the last appearance between chapter 15 and in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, 23 years before God appears to him. God appeared to Hagar 13 years earlier, 14 years earlier, when she was running. The angel of the Lord appeared to her. It never appeared for a 23-year span. But he persisted in following the Lord. You are in, in a long-distance run. This is not a sprint. You walk with God and you walk with Him faithfully. But I urge you this day, when we go into prayer, to receive the Lord this day. I'm going to pray. And you invite the Lord into your heart and confess that Jesus is Lord and He has risen from the dead. And then you owe it to me to come and share that with me. Alright? You owe it to me to come and share that with me. And you're going to come to the Lord today. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Glory, glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, this very day, as I pray, Lord, I ask You that You move upon the hearts of the unbelievers here, that they would pray with me. So if you do not know the Lord, pray with me now. Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner. Wash me by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has died for me. I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that He has risen from the dead. Thank You, Lord, for Your salvation. Fill me to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Thank You, Lord Jesus. And now, Lord, I pray for the believers here that they would learn to press into You in their lives and never give up. Never give up seeking You that they would be like Abram, persisting even 23 years without seeing any of the promises fulfilled. 23 years since the last promise and 25 years since the promise had first been made to him before he saw that promise fulfilled. 
Lord God, I pray for these young people that they would persist and follow Jesus Christ. Lord, all glory be to you. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are King over all the earth. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Son of God. And for your glory, we commit this to you. May the Holy Spirit bless and anoint it. Amen.